G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Always great to have you on the program. Well, later on in the show, we'll be chatting with one of our nation's leading experts on Thai politics. We'll be getting an update on those elections in Thailand. These are the first elections in Thailand in eight years. But first, few political allegations have been as persistent as the charge that Donald Trump has been Vladimir Putin's puppet. The conspiracy theory has gone like this. In 2016, the Trump campaign colluded with Moscow to hack into the emails of the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign chair. The Russians then gave the emails to WikiLeaks, which made them public. And that destroyed the anti-Russian Clinton's chances of winning the White House. Now, this has been the overwhelming media and political consensus in Washington in recent years. In a picture of Russian collusion is coming into focus now. I certainly say with confidence that there is significant evidence of collusion uh, between the campaign and Russia. And who can forget that Four Corners special three-part series on the Trump-Russia collusion? Hello and welcome to Four Corners. Tonight we begin our special three-part investigation into the story of the century, the election of US President Donald Trump and his ties to Russia. And don't forget RN's special podcast, Russia, if you're listening, not to mention Planet America, hosted by Chaz and John Barron. Well, the media told us time and again that Trump was vulnerable to Kremlin blackmail. Why? Because an intelligence dossier produced by an ex-British spy showed Trump's, among other things, dirty deeds in Moscow hotels years before he ran for president. Now, it's important to note that this conspiracy theory was peddled by not just liberals on the left, but neoconservatives on the right. And they told us this is all why Trump wanted to appease a brutal dictator. Well, this conspiracy theory was officially debunked this week. According to the special counsel Robert Mueller's report, there's no evidence to show that the Trump campaign or anyone associated with it conspired or coordinated with Moscow in the 2016 election. No Trump officials abetted the hack into Democratic emails. No Trump officials conspired with WikiLeaks. No wonder the president was boasting. It was just announced there was no collusion with Russia, the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. There was no collusion with Russia. There was no obstruction and none whatsoever. And it was a complete and total exoneration. So how did the media and political class get the Trump-Russia collusion so horribly wrong for so long? Well, two leading skeptics of the collusion narrative have been regular guests on this show. They've copped a lot of nasty criticism for questioning the orthodoxy. Mary Dejewski is a columnist with The Guardian and The Independent in London. She's a former correspondent in both Moscow and Washington. And Stephen Cohen is a professor emeritus in Russian studies at NYU and Princeton University. He's author of a new book called War with Russia? Question mark, from Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. Mary, Steve, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Steve, has Trump been exonerated on the Russia collusion charge? Well, you have to separate that question. Uh, for people such as myself, and I suspect Mary, uh, he was never guilty of this. There was no evidence. There were no facts. And I, and I think Mary, have spent a good time of the last two years pointing this out. So for us, we didn't need Mueller to tell us there was no evidence or facts for the 
argument that Trump somehow conspired with Putin. Uh, but more generally, in terms of American politics and political culture, no, Trump is not exonerated. Okay, this but shortly after Mueller's but shortly after Mueller's conclusions uh, were handed to Congress this week, the New York Times editorial page said, "quote that Mueller could not find sufficient evidence that the Trump campaign." had coordinated directly with the Russians. That may be explained by the fact that they didn't need to. This is the New York Times editorial. They, the Trump campaign, was already getting that help. Mary. Yes, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, and there's been, I mean, there's been more of this um, in the last few hours because now what's happening is that the summary, which of course is all any of us has to go on um, about the conclusions of the Mueller report, that this honesty, if you like, of um, William Barr, the Attorney General, is being questioned. And it's said that because he's an appointee of um, Trump, um, therefore he's guilty of spinning the conclusions of the, uh, of the Mueller report um, in Trump's favor. So you know, we've had, for, for the first 24 hours, we had the insistence that the whole report has got to be published, which you know, I thoroughly support. I'm sure that any, any journalist, anybody interested in this, um, would want the full report to be published. Um, but now we're being, the, 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 the aspersions are being cast on the accuracy of the summary. So really, we're not that much further forward. Yeah, and many people still believe that Putin had a favourite in the 2016 election and that Russia's meddling was responsible for Trump's victory. Steve, do you think that history will say that Trump won in 2016 only because of the Russian help? Well, wait a minute, Tom. You've asked two questions. Do we know that Putin so favoured Trump in 2016? The answer to that is no. We don't know that. What history will judge will depend on, depend on the quality of the historian. But if, it's, uh, if, it, if they are historians who carefully study the false allegations of the last two years and conclude with Mueller, with Mary, with me, and with quite a few others that there never was any evidence for this, then no, history will write it differently. But let me make the larger point. Russiagate is vampire-like. It is going to live on in American politics, certainly for another four years and maybe for decades. It is not going to go away. The poison is in the bloodstream. Yeah, well, some of our listeners will be listening to all of this and say, well, is it really an exoneration because Trump <coughs> had been surrounded by several criminals, you know, the campaign chair, Paul Manafort, uh, the deputy Rick Gates, the national security advisor Michael Flynn, lawyer Michael Cohen, and so on. Mary, how would you respond to those charges that Trump is still dodgy on this question because he was surrounded by all these criminals who have been indicted? Well, I think there's two separate questions here, um, and they're two separate questions that I've been trying to keep separate right through all this, because at each stage when anybody's been accused, any charges have been laid, anybody's been indicted or sentenced, um, immediately the headlines read that this is all to do with the Russia connection and Russia collusion and Trump and all, all that. When you look at what these people have actually been charged with, there is nothing about Russia there. 
what there is is a whole list of the absolutely standard crimes that are endemic in American politics. Um, all the stuff about it's from, from consultants, about money laundering, about um, hiding your tax returns, um, keeping money abroad, all those sort of things. Lying in your defense, trying to, trying to get out of it. You know, these, these are nothing to do with Russia. These are two quite separate questions. I would like just for a second to return to your previous question about whether Putin, whether Putin had a favourite, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, because I think that you know almost asking that question is is quite sort of unhistorical. Because mm. what I think everybody forgets is that right up until election night, right really until the last results started coming in. Nobody dreamt that Trump was going to win, and that included Trump, and that included the Russians. Um, they, they, they certainly didn't didn't like the prospect of having Hillary Clinton as president. Um, but the idea that they actually dreamt up the idea that they that, that they could actually swing the American election, you know, I think that is just absurd. My guests are Mary Dujewski from the Guardian and the Independent in London, and Professor Stephen Cohen. He's author of War with Russia? Question mark from Putin and Ukraine to Trump and RussiaGate. Now's as good a time as any is to say that uh, neither Steve nor Mary uh, is a Trump supporter. You're not conservative pundits. Um, you're, ex- you're Russia experts. And it raises a question about journalism and accountability. Steve, Paul Krugman, your old um, Princeton colleague, New York Times columnist, uh, in January 2019, he asserted, quote, the failure to connect the dots on Trump-Russia was one of the big failures of the 2016 campaign coverage. And he added, there's no sin quite as offensive as challenging conventional wisdom early and then being proved right. Um, Steve, has the media, in light of the Mueller report, done some soul-searching this week about rushing to judgment? Not yet. And part of the uh, tragedy of Russiagate is that it's badly damaged American institutions, the Congress, the Democratic Party, the media, and some of the media outlets that we depend on for reliable reporting. Foremost among them, having discredited itself, is the New York Times. I mean, Krugman, who has immense authority here, he has a column in the New York Times, actually called Trump a traitor. He discredited himself. That's shameful. Uh, But it attaches to the Times and its coverage. Uh, There was an extraordinary episode of media malpractice where the Times, the Washington Post, and the cable news stations that depend on it, such as CNN and MSNBC, did very selective coverage of Russiagate and Russia during these two or three years. They did not fact check the way traditionally they have done. They abdicated their own professional standards. And it's not good. I mean, I don't gloat. Yes, Mary and I were right, but I take no pleasure in this. Well, talking about institutions, what about former members of the US intelligence community? I think of James Clapper, the former director of the National Intelligence, uh, John Brennan, former CIA uh, chief, um, James Comey, among others. At various stages, these people were saying that Donald Trump was a traitor. Mary. 
Well, I think uh, you know, I found, um, especially some of the um, the language and approaches used by James Clapper um, after he left office was absolutely extraordinary for somebody who'd been in that sort of position. I mean, it was highly emotive. It was um, accusatory um, without uh, any sort of facts. But then, you know, anybody in intelligence gets a free pass on the matter of facts because all they have to do is invoke national security. And lo and behold, the veil comes down and everybody says, oh, we trust them. Now, it seemed to me that right from the beginning, um, Trump had put himself against um, not just a large part of the Washington establishment, but specifically the intelligence establishment. And, of course, he compounded that um, after the Helsinki summit, where he suggested that he believed Putin over and above the American intelligence services. Well, now, you know, I would say, and probably Steve would say, well, actually, you know, with hindsight, he was probably right. Um, But it looked to me very much as though the intelligence establishment in Washington once it realized that Trump had even the slightest chance of winning, after, after he, 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 he got the um, Republican nomination, mm. after that, it seemed to me that there was an absolute, that, that there was a straightforward effort um, by probably the intelligence services, security, um, to stop Trump winning. What we need to know is what these top Obama or former, but then Obama intelligence chiefs were doing in late 2015 and early 2016. If they created Russiagate, which has tormented this nation and damaged it, leave Trump aside for nearly three years, it means that our intelligence agencies are way, way off of the reservation. And we need to know about this. That's the real takeaway lesson from what's called Russiagate. And, and, and what, you, could, you could argue, though, that the FBI here unleashed its powers on a candidate for the office of the U.S. presidency. You're missing my point. Forgive me, Tom. Yes, that's true. But this, I think, did not originate with James Comey, who was head of the FBI at the time, and the FBI. I think it originated in the CIA. The CIA is prohibited by law from operating inside the United States. Brennan, if he was the godfather of Russiagate, as I think he was, to go any farther had to pass this off to the FBI. And if you look at the timeline, that appears to be exactly what happened. Okay, now the pressure is now on the Democrats to move on from this collusion illusion. What now for the future of U.S.-Russian relations? Uh, Mary, do you think that Trump will now feel liberated to promote closer relations with the Kremlin? Well, I would wish, but I I actually agree with something that Steve said right early on, um, which was that the atmosphere has now been so poisoned um, that that that, that is going to stick. And it seems to me that it's simply not going to be possible, you know, despite the exoneration, despite the lack of collusion, um, this is not going to be possible for Trump in his, what may prove to be his his first and only term. I don't think that he is going to be able to um, go back to his interest in improving relations with Russia until and unless he wins a second term. Steve, do you share Mary's pessimism? You don't see a new detente in the works? I share her pessimism and I share her analysis, but I introduce one factor. Trump is a bizarre, thick-headed, into-your-face kind of guy. And it is possible that now that he's been exonerated, at least legally, not politically, 
he might just decide to go ahead and do what he said he was going to do during the campaign, cooperate with Russia, either because he knows it's a wise policy detente, or to just show his enemies that he wins. That's the thin reed on which I base my own pro-detente hopes. Mary, finally, uh, Theresa May, your Prime Minister, has pledged to resign as Prime Minister if her Brexit deal is passed by the Commons. But at this stage, and we're talking Wednesday night in uh, England, at this stage, it it seems clear that that no Brexit deal will get through the Commons. Uh, What's your take on the latest news? Well, the latest news is that basically Theresa May has put her job on the line um, in a last-ditch effort to get her deal with Brussels through um, in the hope that, as it were, trading her job for persuading all the dissenters to come on board will finally swing the vote. But unfortunately, it doesn't look as though that's going to happen because within hours of her saying that, um, the Democratic Unionists, the Northern Ireland Party, who basically have a veto over everything because they're practically in government with Theresa May. She needs them to survive in government. Um, They said, well, no, we can't vote for this. We we still can't vote for this deal. We haven't got any concessions we needed. We're not going to do it. They had an effort to find a consensus in Parliament on some other variant. They presented eight variants to Parliament this afternoon, um, and MPs had to vote on each of them. Not a single one of them got a majority of MPs voting for them across party lines or within parties. Not a single majority, which means that everything is in complete stalemate. So the Brexit paralysis continues and the deadline is April 12. Mary, Steve, as always, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much from London. Thank you so much, Tom, from New York. (laughs) Mary Dijewski is a columnist with The Guardian and The Independent in London and Professor Stephen Cohen is author of The War with Russia? From Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. You're on RN. Well, remember that military coup in Thailand a few years ago? Yes, I know Thailand's had eight other successful coups and 12 attempted coups in its history. But the last one in 2014, that was a bit different. Among other things, the military junta conspired with the opposition to bring down the elected government. Well, this week, Thais held their first national election in eight years. To explain all this, let's hear from Aim Sinpeg. She's one of our nation's leading experts on Thai politics. She's a lecturer in government and international relations at the University of Sydney. Aim, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you. Now, in the wake of these elections, is it fair to say that a vibrant democracy has returned to Thailand. No, I think one had to be really sceptical when elections happen in authoritarian regimes uh, because there's a number of ways in which the the current regime could limit the freedom of especially opposition and critics to fully exercise their their rights. But particularly what's more important in the Thai case this time is the constitution under which these elections occur. Uh, They had been changed following the 2014 coup, uh, heavily in favour of continuing the political dominance of the monarchical institution and the military. Yeah, well, that's right, because in the lead up to these elections, many commentators, they did fear that Bangkok's military junta had rigged 
the electoral process to minimise the chance of a transfer of power. That's your sense too? I think what's more important than figure out how rig or how, you know the extent of fl- the the flawness of the election is to figure out whether other parties will actually accept the results, right? Because that's really indicating the next chapter of Thailand after the election. And yes, we can all agree that maybe there's definitely the election is definitely imperfect in a number of ways. But it seems to me that the key parties that are involved in this election will likely accept the result. And that's what's really important, because that indicates their willingness to go forward under the flaw system. Okay, well, tell us more about this incumbent junta leader, Prayworth. Chanachawa. Tell us about him. So he was a coup leader uh, that came to power via military coup in 2014. And um, he has promised a return to democracy as in a return to election soon, but has since delayed and delayed, delayed the election for five years. And one of the biggest reasons why he did that, because he was trying to co-opt other elites and consolidate powers in a way that if he would come back and compete in an election under a, a new political party, that he actually would have a chance of winning it. And it, given the results um, officially now at 95% counted, he did well. He did extremely well, way better than anybody thought. He was able to get lots of elites who used to actually work for his opponents, you know, mm-hmm. work under Thaksin Shinawatra's government to be on his side and was able to gain lots of seats in areas that he wouldn't, he, there, was, there was no expectation okay, for him so to win. Okay, so you say he did well politically, but uh, it's widely believed among Western commentators that under his leadership since that coup in 2014, that he's harshly suppressed dissent. Uh, he's failed to revive the previously high levels of um, economic growth. And moreover, this is the Washington Post here, under his leadership, Thailand has passed India and Russia to become the most economically unequal country in the world. Top 1% of Thais controlling 67% of the wealth. That's not a great record to run on. It's not, but you've got to realise what people are voting on. People are voting on, are we consuming... Do we want to continue with the political dominance of the military and the monarchy in Thailand, or do we want a different kind of future? And the Kunta actually ran a campaign on fear, right? His actual slogan was vote for stability and continuity. And in, in an era of economic uncertainties, which, as you know, is quite complicated when, it, when you ask different people, you know, how do you feel about your economic well-being? Fear could work. Right. And it's clearly had work, especially in the more conservative uh, portions of society. And I mean, they've got more votes in Bangkok than any other party. And that's quite uh, startling for a party that came to power via military coup. Okay, now historical context is important here. 2001, a policeman turned billionaire telecoms magnate. This is Thaksan Shinawatra. He won the elections. But in 2006, he was toppled in a bloodless coup. He fled into a self-exile. Fast forward to 2011, fresh elections. They saw Thaksin's younger sister, Yingluck. She emerged as Thailand's first female prime minister. But by 2014, the military seized power, as we've discussed. She eventually fled the country and joined her brother in exile. Uh, Aim, what did the Thaksin family represent? Hope and change. Before Thaksin, the people felt like their their limitation to being part of the political system 
is on voting day and they didn't feel like voting would actually bring them any substantial change in their life, any tangible benefits to voting. And toxins change all that, especially amongst people in a lower middle class or working class where they just felt that completely disenchanted and disenfranchised by elections. So he gave them hope that if you vote for him, that their lives would actually be better. Okay, and, and just remind us, they, these are the so-called, uh, their supporters of the red shirts, right? Yes, after Thaksin left, um, the movement started as a red shirt in, to, to oppose the military, but to also provide electoral, future electoral support base and, for And were Thaksin. they popular with mainly the rural poor? No, they're actually popular uh, in the urban area as okay. well, right. um, and because there are there are poor people everywhere. But the bulk of the people in the wretches are actually in the lower middle class. Okay, and how do their legacies? This is uh, Thaksin, the Thaksin family. How do their legacies live on in Thailand today? Political dominance in the northeast of Thailand is very, very strong. Mm. So the uh, political legacy is really well entrenched and difficult to actually uh, break down. So you, if you look at the voting turnout and, and the, the voting results, you'll see the, the strongholds of Thailand mm. is still for his party. If you just tuned in, you're on our ends between the lines. You're with me, Tom Switzer. I'm chatting with Aim Sinpeg. She's from the University of Sydney about Thai politics in the wake of Sunday's election. These were Thailand's first elections in eight years. Now, where does the king, who inherited the throne two years ago, where does he fit into this debate about these elections? He gave a speech um, and actually he advised after his own sister announced her candidacy to run, which would have been the first time ever in Thailand history. Wow, that's intriguing. That uh, a royal family member would be directly involved in politics. And so what he, happened? He came out and said that royal family members cannot be part of politics. <laughs> and that gave an ammunition for um, the court to actually ban that political party. Right. And that political party would have been allied with Pe Thai, would have been part of the same coalition behind Thaksin forces okay. in the election. So that really hurt Pe Thai because that was supposed to give them additional votes to form a coalition. Now, I know you have a very significant social media presence. You're one of our nation's leading experts on Thai politics. Thais are one of the world's top users of social media. How has that affected the political mood in Thailand this electoral cycle? Everybody's on social media and Thailand, like you said, is uh, consecutively amongst the most social media active countries in the world. And so all the political parties were engaging with social media. But one party in particular did better than others. That's the Future Forward Party, which is a, a youth-oriented party. And they really leverage um, social media as in they're, they're a newbie, they're a complete rookie, and most of their candidates, actually almost all of them, are rookies themselves. Yes. Well, um, I can imagine those young people you mentioned, they weren't uh, a voting age uh, during the coup in 2014. So they've come a political age in the last five years, right? There are seven new million new, new voters. Wow. This time, and th that's the real unpredictability as well. Because mm. they, um, they didn't remember or were too young when Thailand was under significant political distress from 2004 and 2000, 2014. Uh, so those were the votes that they were, were going after. But also this party was really using social media as a platform um, to spur debates about what's the future for Thailand, right? And using hashtags like, for example we're mature now and we can vote for ourselves because lots of young people in the past have voted according to their family members. And we wanted to break that 
right? It's that you have your own independence, you have your own thoughts, you can vote for yourself. What do you want to vote for? And that campaign seemed to really work out for, okay. for young people. Now, finally, Thailand is one of uh, America's five treaty allies, the others being Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and of course, Australia. Uh, but in recent years, uh, Bangkok has moved closer to China's strategic orbits, even bought Chinese submarines, I understand, a few years ago. Aim, where do you see Bangkok's future strategic trajectory? Thailand is just like any other Southeast Asian country. It's just strategically trying to place it between U.S. and China and being on, on good terms with both. Riding right? two hedging. horses simultaneously. <laughs> They're hedging their bets. It needs to find wherever they can get leverage. Um, and there's a significant Chinese presence in Thailand, correct? Thailand is home to one of the largest Chinese diasporas in the world. Mm. AIM, thanks so much for being on the show again. Thanks so much, Tom. AIM Sinpeg is a lecturer in government and international relations at the University of Sydney. Well, that's it for this week's show. Remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can listen via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week. Thank you.